This morning, we're not going to have a separate scripture reading because we're, we've reached the end of our goal here, the book of Revelation. So if you don't have a Bible, please pick up the one that's in a chair in front of you and uh, you can turn to the very end. If you're not familiar with the Bible, just go to the very back. It's the last letter written and it's the book of Revelation. It's not Revelations. Because it's a revelation about a person. That's the person of Jesus Christ. And so uh, many of you started the journey as as we started in September. You remember with Genesis 1-1. And here we are, you know, nine months later, arriving at the very back of the book, the book of Revelation. And so this is a complicated book. And obviously in one sermon, there's no, no possibility of covering all the questions that you would have or I would have. Um, but I'll do my best to sort of thumb through the book and pick out some highlights. But let's uh, pray together before we do that. Lord, we're here trying to see see something that's um, marvelous, wonderful, exciting, terrifying, sobering. And John's just trying to describe something that's indescribable which is you, and then the end of this timeline. So would you help us see what you want us to see here this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I first learned the word CODA, C-O-D-A, by uh, going to my daughter's ballet uh, performances. Because at the end of all the performances, there was something called a CODA. Now, that word's used in a couple of different ways, but particularly in terms of ballet, it's, it's a finality, finale, finale. It's the last uh, sort of performance on the stage. And what would happen is there would be an, an increase in intensity and an increase in activity. And quite often, uh, the, the people who started out on the stage were joined by other performers. So past performers would all come out. So you'd have all the dancers sort of on the stage at one time, and they're all dancing in their different costumes. And, and it comes to this crashing in. It brings this whole performance to one final conclusion. And so when we get to the book of Revelation, it feels like a coda. It feels like everybody's on the stage now at the last time. In fact, you can't possibly read the book of Revelation without knowing the 65 books that come before because you have all these images, all these words, uh, all these uh, past performers, so to speak, get out on the stage. And as we look at the stage together this morning, there's, you know, you're going to be looking at this person and I'm going to be looking at this person and there's too many people on the stage. So I'm just, I'm just crying out to you this morning, Coda. So every once in a while, I'm just going to say Coda. I'm just going to say, there's lots of things on the stage here and I'm going to pick out one or two and you may go, well, what about that one? And that'll just be great for you to study and you find out why this got said or why this character came out on stage. It's endlessly enjoyable to study the book of Revelation. The, the quote that's on your, the front of your bulletin from Northrop Fry is where I'm getting the, the title to the sermon. He says this, the more one studies the book of Revelation, the more one feels that it was deliberately composed as a coda to the whole canon. That's a gr- I just love that phrase. So here's the coda to the whole canon. Here's the the last performance where everybody gets on stage. It's the the final performance on on the timeline of of this human history. It's not not the final performance of all of human history because that's going to continue on. It's just this timeline is going to come to one final end. And it definitely has an increase of intensity and an increase of activity. And so I want to I want to look at this and just offer some explanation, some encouragement, and and then some wonder. And so this is the kind of sermon that it's not a lean back sermon. It's a it's a lean forward sermon. There's a lot of information here, and you'll have to be engaged, and it'll really be helpful for you to be looking at the text as we point out different uh, pieces of this coda. The first thing I want to do is just look at chapter one, verse nine. And this is where it says, I, John, this is the writer, the apostle, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom 
and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So the letter is written by the Apostle John. He's the last living of the 12 apostles, probably written somewhere 90, 95 A.D. And John had had firsthand experience with persecution. He lived in the reign of the Roman emperor, emperor, a guy named Domitian. And Domitian, very hostile to Christianity and particularly hostile to the leaders of Christianity. So he had, reportedly, had a big pot of oil boiling and dipped the Apostle John into the boiling oil, just slowly dipping him, hoping that everybody would see this is what happens to people who trust in Christ. Miraculously, somehow, John survived, and that angered uh, Domitian so much, he sent him basically to a prison island. It's called Patmos, a little rocky island in the Aegean Sea, part of Greece. And that's where all the prisoners went. And so he ends up on this island of Patmos, and he has this particular vision. Now, one of the things that's helpful to know about Domitian is that whenever Domitian came to your town, you would have to say to him as he went along the street, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. So it's helpful to know that little piece of history, especially when we get into when John sees Jesus. And notice he's a partner in the tribulation. He understands people who are in the tribulation. He's involved with it. He's he's connected. He he understands the, the need for patient endurance for those who are connected to Christ. And so John actually makes a a wonderful counselor, a wonderful pastor for people who are going through real trials and tribulations. He can connect to people who have had this kind of thing happen to them. He wouldn't necessarily be concerned about Starbucks cups at Christmas. This would not be a chief concern for the Apostle John. The Apostle John is a pastor to people who are experiencing real trial, real tribulation. He's a partner with them. And then you notice chapter 1, verse 19, the purpose of the letter, I write these things to you who, I write the things you have, now write the things you have seen. So there's a past component. There's some things that you've seen or you know they're going to get on the stage. Those things that are present, that are happening right now, and then those things that take place after this, the future. So I'm going to put all these things on the same stage, things that have happened in the past, things that are happening right now, and things that are happening in the future. That's what makes the book so complicated. So I want to just look at those things. First of all, chapters 2 and 3, those things, you notice it says, those things that are So these are the things that are. This is the current situation on the ground with the churches that John's familiar with. John had been probably a part of the church at Ephesus, this main church that's now in modern-day Turkey. And it's the church that Paul established. It's the church that Apollos went to. It's a church that Timothy was a, a pastor of. And John had been connected to that particular church. And around that church of Ephesus, in, a, in, a, in an actual mail route, are several other churches, six to be exact. So now he's speaking to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And we talked about this a couple of summers ago. We went through each one of these uh, churches. And the mail route starts in Ephesus like the mother church and then spins around sort of in a, in a, uh, a clock-like ways to the last church in Laodicea. Now, we don't have time to read through this, but what you would find out is uh, five of these seven churches are already in need of reformation. That, that personally surprises me. Because I think, hey, you guys are the first round. In fact, the church at Ephesus, what else could you ask for? Paul, Timothy, Apollos, John? I mean, what a lineup. I mean, wouldn't you love those to be the pictures of your first few pastors of your church? And yet, even in the midst of this, Ephesus and four of these other churches, five in total, they're already in need of reformation. They've already slipped off in some way. Eugene Peterson says this, None of these churches had been in existence for more than half a century. 
And yet already denigration was in progress. Their sluggish lives, I love how he says this, their sluggish lives were propped up by termite-riddled timbers of a once vigorous religion. That They had these strong timbers, but something has come in and started to eat away at them. And then he concludes, Peterson says, a random selection of seven churches in any century, including our own, would turn up the same thing. So you might say, well, let's just all get back to the early church. Well, which one of these churches do you want to get back to? Because there's only two of them that seem to be worth following after. And so what we're saying is every church in every generation's need of reformation, need, needing coming back to the Bible. And so we notice there's a particular downward spiral. It, it seems to start in Ephesus, and then as it goes out from Ephesus, it just seems like there's a, a pattern here that once you start off on a bad foot, it, it quickly spirals down to the end. So let's look at this. Uh, chapter 2, verse 4, the church at Ephesus. He's mentioned several good things, but then he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, or you've lost your first love. They, they, they've somehow taken their eyes off the prize of the love of God in his word. This church got a quarter of an inch off. They had a lot of good things going for them, but Jesus, you see if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, Jesus is coming in and saying, you've got a lot of great things. I want to affirm that, but you're a quarter of an inch off on the love of God and the love for his word. And if you continue down this path, it's not going to be good for you. So let's, let's, let's bring back that first panel and put it back in the spot so everybody can, can move in the right direction. Then the second church, the church at Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 20. Again, thinking of a downward spiral. But I have this against you. You do have some good things. But I have this against you. You tolerated that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. So you've allowed false teaching in, and the false teaching has led to the practice of sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. So it's, it's as if Jesus is saying to Ephesus, you've got a quarter of an inch off. And, it, and if you don't correct that, here's what's going to happen. You're going to eventually have false prophets come in, and the very first thing that's going to happen is that the church is going to accept sexual immorality in the church as normal. Now, this could be written today. It's just, I wish I had time just to think about when you get away from God, how somehow that affects your, your sexual nature. Genesis chapter 1, what's the first thing they do? Start hiding themselves. Romans chapter 1, what happens when God gives them over? It gives them over to sexual immorality. Revelation here, chapter 2. Coda, too many things to talk about. I want to stop and say, oh, let's look at this. But you, you see what's happening. A pattern is happening. I've gotten away from the word of God. And when I get away from the word of God, something happens about my sexual identity or understanding of sexuality. And I get off on that, too. I move away in that way. And so Jesus is making an assessment. Come back, church at Thyatira. Well, then we have another turn, a downward turn. Sardis, chapter 3. Verse 1, I know your works. This is the end of verse 1. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. So here, here's the next downward step. You have a reputation, but your reputation doesn't match the reality. People from the outside can see you as a church and say, well, they have a reputation of being a good church. But Jesus comes to the inside and says, but you're dead. You have a body, but you have a body that doesn't have a heart. And so you need to wake up. You know, you're just about, you're like the patient that's on life support. 
you've got a couple of good things, but, but you, you move from a quarter of an inch off to, to false teaching and sexual immorality, and now you have this reputation of being alive, but really you're dead, and I'm trying to give you this one last you know, uh, blast to, to wake you up. And finally, sort of rock bottom, Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 17. For you say, this is the church speaking, you say, well, I'm rich. I have prospered. I I don't need anything. You don't realize that you're a wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So rock bottom is I'm rich, whether that's in wealth or education or comfort. And you keep meeting as a church. But catch this, you no longer need God. Can you imagine that? You gather together every Sunday. You sing songs. You, you say certain prayers. You, you've got sort of the outside thing. But really, if you were to take a poll of the people in the church, they don't desperately need God. I mean, it's nice if he shows up or whatever, but we're not there because we desperately need God. This, this is rock bottom. They've now t- they, they don't even realize the condition they're in because they look and they say while they come to church, you know what, I don't need God. But yet they continue to, to meet together in Jesus' very sobering assessment, verse 16, to this church, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So it's this downward, downward trajectory of these churches. You get, you get a quarter of an inch off, and pretty soon you're just going to get spit out of the Lord's mouth. It's a, it's a sad downward spiral, but I want to infuse a moment of hope here. Chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus isn't giving up on his churches. Behold, very famous verse, Behold, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. Even if you're dead, maybe you can hear this knock. If anyone hears my voice, if anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. There's still a chance to come to the throne of God. There's still a chance to open this door. He's not giving up on his people. And then this transitions to chapter 4 and 5 which basically is the throne room of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you open this door, this is what you're going to get to see. Chapter 4 and chapter 5. And it's this magnificent vision of worshiping God and worshiping Jesus. So let me just read through, beginning with chapter 4, verse 3, quickly, and just, just try to get caught up in what John is seeing here. And he who sat there, this is God, he sits on this throne. He had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, this this, uh, precious stone. And around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance of emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with crowns, golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first one was a lion, and the next one was like an ox, and then the third one was like a man, and the fourth was like an eagle. And these four living creatures, each of them with six wings, they're full of eyes. And they're singing this, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures glory gave glory and honor and gave thanks to him who was seated on the throne, that's God, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, then they fell down before him. And then they cast their crowns towards the throne. And then they started singing this song, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. Coda. I mean, there's a lot here. But you open this door, this is what you get, this magnificent worship service going on for God. God's on the throne. The only way to describe him is to describe him like light 
of every color emanating out from the throne like a a rainbow. And then bathed in these colors are 24 thrones, 12 for uh, the the Hebrews, the, the tribes of Israel. Twelve for the apostles. It's a way of saying all of the Old Testament people of God, all of the New Testament people of God, they're all pointing towards Jesus. And then the four living creatures representing some kind of angelic beings. And notice what unites them all together is worship. All glory belongs to God. He's the single focus. These these, uh, elders who have crowns, the things that they've achieved, they're thrown down before the Lord. Because I, I, I've achieved nothing on my own. It all has come from God. It all goes back to God. So I'm casting my crown before him. Again, Eugene Peterson talking about worship. We worship so that we live. We worship so that we live in response to and from the center of the living God. Now, just listen, failure to worship, failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms. We're at the mercy of every advertisement, seduction, and siren. People who do not worship live in a vast shopping mall where they go from shop to shop, expending enormous sums of energy and endless trips trying to satisfy the next appetite. Life lurches from one partial satisfaction to another, interrupted, interrupted by ditches of disappointment. Man, he says it so well. If you're not worshiping God, you will worship something. And it will be like a shopping mall. And you'll spend your life, now I know nobody could even imagine this, but you'll spend your life trying to go after this thing, and then after this thing, and then after this thing, thinking these things are finally going to be satisfying. This person, this job, this education, this amount of money, and you're like a shopping mall, but what happens? They're ultimately disappointing. And you end up in a ditch of disappointment. And you just live your whole life going basically from one ditch to another. Because you've got the wrong object of your focus. And so the entire book of, of the book of Revelation really wants to arrest your attention off the current circumstances and get your worship on God. So then in the middle of this worship service, now we're turning to chapter 5, John becomes aware of a seven-sealed scroll. It's got writing on the front and back, meaning it's a, it's a completed scroll. And it contains the purposes and decrees of God. And John is weeping because nobody seems to have the power to open the scroll. Who, who could execute the decrees and purposes and purposes and purposes and purposes of calls out? Who's worthy? Who has the power? And then I love verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. And then just listen to this great description. All kinds of uh, previous characters coming back on the stage. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw not a lion, but what? A lamb. A lamb standing So a lamb that's alive as though it had been slain. It looks like it previously been slain, but now it's standing. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who seated on the throne. So this is a great picture of Jesus. And notice the lamb who's also the lion, is worthy of the same worship. Uh, You you would notice if you're reading this carefully, there's five different songs or hymns in chapters 4 and chapter 5. And the, the last one ends here in verse 13. And I heard from every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So everything is praising God, all creation is praising God to him who sits on the throne, God, and to the Lamb, Jesus, 
blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. So, so he who sits on the throne and the lamb are all worthy of worship. Just notice that. Connecting Jesus and his divinity to God. And then I just want to point out how they end this big worship service. One word. Amen. I mean, this, this uh, one commentator says it's a shout of applause. I mean, if Robert Campbell were here, it'd be, let's give the Lord a hand praise. This is like the ultimate give the Lord a hand praise, right? This is everybody singing, and it sort of comes to an end, and, and all you can shout at this great moment is just, you can't talk about it. You just have to shout, amen. And, and there's really no good human parallels to this moment. But, but if you've ever been in a stadium, whether it has 10,000 or 100,000, and your team wins on the last second, you know, drive in football, or the last second shot, or the, the walk-off home run, whatever it is, and you've got all these people who are fans, they're hoping that from de- defeat you're going to have victory, and then the guy hits it out of the park, the guy hits the three-pointer, and what do you do? Wow, that was a wonderful, you know, shot, and he got around that pick and just, no! You go out, Yes! Amen, that's awesome. You're just high-fiving everybody. That's what this is like. If you have a high school student who finally graduates, a college student who finally graduates, you and your spouse or your family, when they walk across, amen. Oh, amen. You You don't have energy to express everything you could express. You just have energy for amen. It's it's finally over. In two weeks, Grayson and Kelly will get married right here. And I notice when the, the doors open and the bride comes down, Grayson never turns and looks at me. <laughs> the, the bride's never looking at me as she comes down. Why? Man, they're locked on each other. Yes. Yes, this is right. This is what I've been waiting for. You're the one. That's as close as we can get to this moment. You're not going to have time. You're not going to have emotional capacity to say anything other than just amen. My question is, are you part of that chorus Have you really cast your crown at Jesus' feet? Or you're at a mall and you're just shopping and you're hoping, hey, this next thing is going to be it. So you can do this when you're in high school. You can do this when you're 85. I'm just shopping for this one more thing. And what I want you to know, the Bible says, you're going to live your life from a ditch of disappointment to another ditch of disappointment. There's only one person worthy of worship, and that's Jesus Christ. And you can say amen a little bit now, but when you get to chapter 5, everybody, amen. Chapter 6 to chapter 20 is the beginning of the breaking of the seal, which I would say initiates God's final judgment or God's final wrath. And it it rolls out like peals of thunder, which we'll see here in a minute. And there's three sets of seven. There's seven seals. And then a couple of chapters later, John talks about seven trumpets. And then a few chapters later, he talks about seven bowls. So we've got seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And I would say, not everyone would say this, I would say this is a description of one event three different ways. So he's just describing this event, God's 
ultimate end, God's wrath coming on the earth and it all coming to a close. And he's just sort of spiraling around that event and he's just describing it different ways. It's not this happens and then this happens and then this happens. I think they're all happening together. And one of the reasons I say that is because they all end the same way. Look with me, chapter 8, verse 5. This is after the seventh seal is broken. So the, the final judgment. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. That's the end of the seven seals. Chapter 11, verse 9 is the end of the seven trumpets. For three and a half days, and from some of the peoples and the tribes and languages of nations, I'm sorry, 11, 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant, Coda, another thing on the stage, was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. Then chapter 16, verse 17. The seventh angel, now this is the seventh bowl, poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. So I think it's describing these same the same event, the, this final end time judgment of uh, this line of, of human history. And I just want to make a couple of observations here. There's so much that could be said. First of all, I want us to just observe or just say or maybe just recognize that there will be a final judgment for everyone. Just have to live with that in your mind. It's so helpful, it's so correcting, it's so encouraging. I mean, if you've been violated in some way and the person's gotten away with it, there's going to be a final judgment. And it's God who's going to do the judging. If you're going astray, there's going to be a final judgment. And you may think no one else sees it, but God sees it. So there is going to be a final judgment. And in words you might remember from Amos chapter 5, 24, and the reason you would remember them is not from Amos, but from Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. We will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. So Martin Luther King sees as there's injustice, and he pulls from Amos, who also sees that there's injustice in his time, and he's saying, I'm not going to be satisfied until finally justice rolls down like waters. It, it thunders down like a mighty stream. And Genesis, or Revelation is that final thunder, that God's wrath is going to be poured out like a mighty stream. And it's a frightful description when it happens. Turn back with me to chapter 6, verse 12. When he, this is Jesus, opens the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the king's of the earth and the great ones. Notice who he's observing. The kings of the earth. These people are great people. And other great ones and generals and rich and powerful. And everyone, slave and free. When God's wrath rolls out, what did they try to do? Hide themselves in caves and among rocks and the mountains. They actually called for the mountains and rocks. Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come. And who can stand? Still trying to hide, just like Genesis 3. A, a final day will come. And it's a frightful description. And it has this question, can anyone stand? Who can stand? Answer, 
chapter 7, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw, chapter 7, sorry. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude. This is chapter 7, verse 9. That no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and language, standing. Where? Before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So there are people who can stand in God's wrath. And who are those people? There are people who are facing the throne of God. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Death is coming. Not just physical death, but a final death, a final separation from God. But there is a way to escape that death, and that is for the lamb to be slain and his blood like a door being, being over the doorpost of your life. So death passes over you, and so Jesus is the final lamb. And everyone who's looking at that throne, they're saying, Amen! While destruction comes to everyone else. So there is a way to stand. And it's a sobering, sobering warning. Chapter 14, verse 9. Let's look at this together. To all those who are not facing the throne. Chapter 14, verse 9. And another angel, a third, following them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beasts... They're in the shopping mall. They're, they're looking for other ways out or other ways of satisfaction and its image. And they receive the mark on their forehead or of his hand. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented, tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So I just want you to notice, everyone is a worshiper. Every human being was made to worship, and every human being does worship. It's just a matter of the object of your worship. It's not a matter of if you're worshiping, it's a matter of what you're worshiping. And so some are worshiping the lamb and some are worshiping the beast or the world or anything other than God. And if you're worshiping something other than God, then you will drink the full wrath of God. It's a sobering moment. I talked to a friend who believed in God. I think I may have told you this story. And I said, okay, we both believe in God. We're both going to stand before God. Yep. We're both going to get some kind of judgment from God because we've done some wrong things. Would you agree? Definitely. I'm standing behind Jesus. Friend, who are you standing with? I'm standing by myself. So my question, and the most important question anybody can be asked is, who do you worship? The choices you make right now have eternal consequences. There's no reason to read the Bible and think there's another chance after this life. One day the sky will be rolled back like a scroll. And just justice is going to come down like a, a mighty stream, like a waterfall. And my question is, when it comes and the deluge comes and it's all washed out and purified, are you still going to be standing? Or are you going to be washed away forever? And are you sure? Or you just have your fingers crossed? Chapter 20 is the most problematic chapter in the whole book of the Bible. And there are a lot of problematic chapters in the book of the Bible. And I'm not in any way going to try to, to dissolve the tension here. 
I'm going to send you some resources and you can look on your own. But you have this thousand years which has divided Christians over all time as to what Jesus is really referring to, the millennium, when does that come, all that sort of thing. But what we can say, and we can say with great joy, is that Satan is finally defeated. No matter how that comes about, Genesis 3 is finally 15. This son who's going to be born of a woman finally destroys all of the power of the serpent or of the devil. And so what I want us to do now in the, in the, in the final moments is to look at chapter 1, um, 21, sorry, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear. Every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning or crying or any pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter this city nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel, verse 20, chapter 22, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city and also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Genesis chapter 1, With its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God And the lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see him face to face. This is a great moment. This is a great moment. This is a moment every Christian cannot wait for. And let me just make a couple of of observations. First, notice the structure of the Bible. It begins in a garden, and it ends in a garden. One commentator says, you know, the, 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 the same picture on the front of the Bible is, is, is on the back of your Bible. You can't read Revelation 21 and 22 without noticing the similarities between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And what I want us to make sure of is that we understand that the created world is restored. Meaning, number one, it's not escaped from. So a lot of times you have this, people do have this feeling like, okay, this world is evil, and so I'm going to escape, and I'm going to escape and go to heaven. And what is heaven like? Well, I don't know. You float around like on a cloud. You sing a lot. I mean, something like that. And I would want to say, no, that's not what happens. The, the created order is a good thing. And, and we're not going to spend an eternity sort of floating around on a cloud. We're going to spend eternity in concrete realities. So you're going to walk and you're going to have a body and you're going to talk and you're going to eat and you're going to love and you're going to laugh. All the great things about this creation are going to be restored and renewed. So a lot of times if you just have this escapist mentality, you think, I don't really want to go to heaven. Because like, I, like I like to hike and I... I like my friends, and I don't just singing the whole time with a harp. That doesn't seem like it gets it. And because that's not what it's supposed to be like. It's going to be a concrete reality. And the reason you know that for sure is when Jesus came back, what did he do? Touch me. Let's have a meal together. Secondly, creation is restored, it's not annihilated. I might say it this way, creation is purified, not annihilated. Second Peter chapter 3, lots of people when they read this, they think of annihilation. In the last days, scoffers will come. Where is this coming? Jesus promised. That's what they're going to say. Everything goes on as it has been from the beginning of creation, but they deliberately forget That long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And these waters of the world at that time 
was a, turned out to be a deluge and destroyed the earth. That's Noah. So waters came and destroyed the earth. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So a lot of times people say, well, this world's just going to be burned up. So it's going to be like annihilated. And I would say, I don't think that's the best way to think of fire. And the reason I don't think of that, that is the best way is because when waters came, did it destroy the earth? Well, no, not exactly. It, it better to say it purified the earth. And when this fire comes, it's like the fire of the refiner's fire. I'm going to burn up all that is ungodly. Not all that th- all that is. And so the, the second creation is going to be a, a purified version of this world. And no, you've just remember from Gen- Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter into it. So it's going to be different than the garden because something unclean did enter into the garden. This garden, nothing is going to be able to enter in. Why? Because the real Adam is there. And it's going to make sure nothing comes in. Also, Romans 8, the creation waits. What does it wait? It waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the, the creation was subjected to frustration. But one day the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. See, when Adam fell, all of creation fell, and they're waiting for the sons of God to come back, and then the creation can sort of break through its bonds, and it can enjoy the glorious freedom of the children of God. So the creation is a good thing. It will be restored. And now there are going to be some similarities and dissimilarities. I can think of some dissimilarities I would like with my new body. But it's going to be a concrete reality. You're going to be able to shake my hand. We're going to be able to sit together and have a meal together in heaven. And whatever great thing you like about this earth, it's going to be ten times greater. A million times greater. And it's going to go on and on without any concern of sin entering in. One correction and then I'll come to a close here. Chapter 21 verse 4. When does God wipe away every tear? When will there be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain? The answer, when the new heavens and the new earth come. And the reason I'm pointing this out is frequently you hear, and it usually comes from people who are trapped in the health and wealth crowd, And they'll say something like this. The kingdom of God has broken into this world when Jesus came. That's true. Therefore, if you're a child of the king, you should experience be experiencing all the joys of the kingdom now. That's untrue. Yes, the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ has broken into a new way. But there still is pain, there still is mourning, there still is crying. Why do we know that? John himself is experiencing all these things. And I would say this, at a minimum, people who say this, this is what theologians call, this is a big word, over-realized eschatology. So you want to throw that out at a dinner party next week. Over-realized In other words, eschatology is the study of end times, and I think your eschatology is over-realized. You've brought it into this time, and it's not going to be brought into this time in the way you're saying. You're, you're, You're bringing all the future promises of God into the present. And I would say that's a poor reading of the Bible. And I would, I just want to emphasize this because it's not, doesn't turn out just to be a poor reading of the Bible. It turns out to be cruel. If you have an over-realized eschatology, meaning you're a child of the king, you should have experienced all the kingdom right now, then you tell hurting people, believers who are in pain, that you shouldn't be experiencing this kind of pain. You shouldn't have this kind of cancer because you're a child of the king. You should have rule or dominion over those kinds of things. 
And when you tell that to that person and they don't become healed, what do they think? I'm not a child of the king. That is cruel. Even if it's not intended, if it's just misapplied theology, it's misapplied to the most hurting people. So the person who has cancer now thinks, maybe I'm not in the kingdom. And that is untrue. And I was told that personally about my mother who died of cancer. And it is cruel. So it needs a corrective. And it needs a corrective not by me. By Revelation 21, it's in the Bible. Instead, when someone's hurting, you say, let's pray because God can bring healing. But let's keep in mind that that this earth isn't our final destination. So let's pray for healing and let's repeat these words from the Apostle Paul. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That's where I'm going. And I will follow the Lamb wherever he goes until I get to that point. And the Lamb of God tells me anyone who wants to follow after me must take up his cross and follow me. Let me just conclude with a paragraph from The Last Battle. This is the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Lewis, man, he just says something so well. And here he's bringing, he's bringing his story to an end. And as he spoke, this is the Christ figure, the lion. As he spoke, Aslan no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I can't write about them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can mostly, most truly say they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's just so much here. I'm just saying, Coda. So many actors on the stage, so many, so many uh, pieces of vocabulary, so many pictures. But that there's a few real pictures we have to have in our mind. As believers who, who may well be facing real tribulation, and we know our brothers and sisters in Iraq and other places are facing that now. That we have a hope. We have a lion and a lamb. It's a sober warning for those who maybe are at the shopping mall. That this is, this is a time to, to get out of that ditch of disappointment. And cast all of their crowns, all of their hope on Jesus. Use this great last letter. To speak truth into hearts and minds here today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.